Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I am the publisher on Women's Agenda and I'm with my Agenda Media co-founder, Tyler Lambert. Hello, Tyler. How's it going? Good, good. In your final weeks of the third trimester before entering the fourth trimester, but um, it's good to have you in these last few weeks. Thank you for being here. (laughs) (laughs) On the agenda this week, we will be talking about a record-breaking government on diversity and that government happens to be in Australia. We don't often get to say that. Cheryl Sandberg is leaning out. The Amber Heard and Johnny Depp defamation trial has ended. And Julia Gillard has some helpful advice to women that not everyone is thinking is so helpful, but it is opening up a big discussion about work from home and whether it is detrimental to workplace gender equality. Thank you for listening. Hello, Tala. How are you? I am okay. It was interesting you just saying that it was the third trimester, but I saw Jan Fran, who is also as pregnant as I am at the moment, describe it as the 14th trimester the other day. And I was like, yes, that is exactly how I feel right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's tough at the end. And it's especially tough when you feel, I always would feel like I'd be walking around and people would kind of see me like each day. So there's someone in a cafe or someone in an office that I walk past every day and just look at me and think, how is that person still pregnant? (laughs) (laughs) And I moved up to regional Australia last year, which has been beautiful and it's a lovely little town. But what I will note is that people in Sydney are less likely to comment on your body, whereas I've had a lot of older men (laughs) who think that they're being kind and warm comment on how large I am. The best one was someone who told me that I looked like I was quite threatening the other day. Quite threatening. Okay, because you've also had the twins comment as well. Oh, yeah, multiple, multiple twins comments. Yeah. I mean, it's just really in small towns, people just feel like they can comment. Like how is a pregnant woman in any way threatening? How is that in any way threatening but I think anyway. he thought that I looked like I might explode which is <laughs> just even worse <laughs> <laughs> right, I think you look excellent so I would just ignore them <laughs> a pregnant woman is always an, a beautiful sight so well done um and I wish you obviously the best for the next couple of weeks so we need to talk about wins for women And exciting news this week because this segment, and we know that a lot of you really like this segment, so thank you. And it's a really great way I feel that we can bring some positive news because there is always positive news that we can talk about. And I love how we can have this opportunity to talk about really great wins that are happening in politics and business, in tech, in climate, wherever it is. So we're excited that our partner, the Cardia Women's Initiative, is supporting the segment this week. And it gives me an opportunity to also share a little bit about that initiative as well. So It is a global entrepreneurship program that champions women founders whose businesses have a social or environmental impact, and we always love those. So the eligible businesses for this prize, they must be for profit in the early stages of growth and meet one of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So this year marks the program's expansion with the creation of a Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Award, which is open to all genders, and a new regional award exclusively for founders and entrepreneurs from Australia and New Zealand. So like we said, it is a global entrepreneurship program, but there we do have that regional award that's open to this part of the world. Applications are currently open until the end of June 
for the 2023 edition. And for the prizes that occur in this program, so awardees are granted up to $100,000 in funding. That's US dollars. They are granted media visibility, tailored mentoring, international business exposure, and they will join a vibrant global community of experts, advisors, and investors, among other things. So thank you to the Cardi Women's Initiative for supporting this segment. Thank you for having this great global entrepreneurship program. And please go and apply. You can do so at cartierwomensinitiative.com and we'll make sure that link is in the show notes. So on to the wins, Tyler. I think we've got a few, but I will start with you. Well, I mean, I feel like it has been a week of wins and we actually spoke about this through our team this week about how many positive shifts and changes we've seen. And, you know, it really does have to be noted the new ministry and cabinet and caucus of the Labor government was announced this week. And it really warmed me to my core to see how not only how many women were involved in that and how many women have been elected, but but also the vast cultural diversity that we've seen, which really has just been absolutely lacking in Australia's political makeup for, well, my entire life. I've never really seen true diversity represented in parliament and obviously you know certain areas of parliament still have a long way to go but it is really encouraging to see this new labor caucus and i wrote on this this week about what it signifies for culturally diverse australians like myself and don't get me wrong i live a very privileged life but i i do think it's really important to be able to see you know, who you are and, you know, your background represented in the people that are representing you. And I think that now with this new kind of real of vibrant faces and and people that have been brought into the fold there um, and been elected, you know, we have people from really interesting backgrounds. I noted in my piece, you know, Sam Lim, who is a Malaysian cop turned dolphin trainer. He has spoken very kind of openly about his experience growing up in Malaysia in quite a disadvantaged way. But also now his kind of courageous pursuit for social justice and and why he wanted to join the ALP and why he wanted to be an MP. And he obviously just got elected in WA's seat of Tangney. But again, in terms of women, we also have seen people like Sally Situ, who became the member for Reid in Sydney. We've seen Cassandra Fernando for Holt, um, Michelle Ananda Raja for Higgins. We saw Penny Wong become our first culturally diverse female foreign minister. So I think it's such an exciting time. And it was really, for me, I, I didn't necessarily think that it would trigger such a profound response but it really did make me so happy and we shared that piece across socials and the number of people that have expressed similar sentiments and pride in seeing this kind of diverse makeup of their new government has been awesome. Yeah, it's really exciting to see. We've certainly seen the positive uh, feedback across the stories that we've published and the photos that we've seen and what you see across various parts of social media. I mean, the records there, the record number of women in cabinet, record number of women in the ministry. Um, 
I would have liked to have seen a gender balance cabinet. I feel like Australia, it really is time. And the US got one last year. We know we know that France has one. Sweden has one. Rwanda has one. Uh, we know that Spain has one. So it's just, it's about time. Australia got that as well. And it would have been really great to see us kind of crack that that measure there. And I thought that this would be the time. I should also say Canada, of course, famously in 2015, when the Prime Minister got asked that question, why do you have so many women in your cabinet? He just responded, because it's 2015. Well, here we are in 2022. And I thought maybe this would be the year, but not yet, perhaps soon, but still records. And that's extraordinary. And a record number of women and there was incredible diversity here as well like you talked about Tala in that new cohort of new Labor MPs who have entered the Labor caucus which was really exciting to see can I just point like you mentioned Sam Lim there and you just think like when it comes to appointing like talent to uh, political leadership and seeing talent getting elected like you can't really go past this guy <laughs> I mean, like speaks multiple languages like I think up to 10 languages joined the Western Australian Police Academy in 2006 and was awarded police officer of the year in Western Australia for his work with multicultural communities during the COVID pandemic also has the whole dolphin trainer thing going (laughs) cool I mean I know that Peter Dutton is or was also a police officer in (laughs) Queensland but I'm not sure he has the same kind of caliber of like the experience his CV is not matching up with Sam Lim's it's not quite matching up no so (laughs) that is pretty cool I think that's awesome for pointing him out so I just thought that you know, for so long we've had a parliament and, and on both sides, the Labor Party and the Liberal Party predominantly recruit from the same spaces. A lot of these people are going through the same schools. They have similar socioeconomic backgrounds. They look very similar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's just really important. We have a country where one in four of us comes from a, a culturally diverse background. It is high time that that is represented in the people that that are making the decisions for everyone. Yes, exactly. My win will follow on from that as well. Uh, So I want to talk about our new Foreign Affairs Minister, Penny Wong. So obviously she was sworn in within 24 hours of Labor winning the election so that she could get on that plane and she could go to that quad meeting immediately. She's in Samoa right now for the second time since being sworn in. And we'll note that she was only, you know, what is it? It's not even two weeks. Samoa for the second time. Um, And I've just seen in the past hour that she has announced a new eight-year partnership with Samoa to help address human development in the Pacific Island nation as well as a new maritime patrol boat for the country. So she's out there, she's doing deals, she's in the Pacific, she's on this diplomatic offensive, she's doing more in this one and a bit weeks than I think we got from the previous one and a half years of the previous government. And what we have since heard from Pacific leaders in the last few days with this new government and with this diplomatic offensive that Senator Penny Wong is currently doing is that they're pleased to see climate policies in the mix from this new Labor government. They appreciate it. They've been calling for it, begging for it for years. And let's not forget that it was Peter Dutton, our new opposition leader, and Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison having that little laugh on camera a few years back about uh, nations going underwater and water lapping at the doorsteps and why that time means nothing when that's happening. So we know that Pacific Nations saw that. We know that Pacific Nations have seen what this government has been doing. And we can't say that, you know, 
this work that Penny Wong's been doing over the past few days is the reason why we just saw Pacific Islands rejecting an economic and security pact with China. Um, Maybe they would have rejected that anyway. I don't know. But I feel like they know that we're going to have a stronger relationship with our Pacific neighbours there with someone like Senator Penny Wong than what we were getting under the previous government, which was almost like it was to ignore this part of Australia, pretend it wasn't happening, focus on US, focus on otherwise and and focus Mm. on trying to really, really push the uh, drums of war stuff, which we got so much from Peter Dutton. So that's my win. And she's just so bloody competent, isn't she? Like you watch her in those press conferences, you watch her in those diplomatic conversations. I was just watching ABC News just before with her talking with the female Samoan Prime Minister there and she just oozes confidence and competence and charisma and she just knows her shit like back to front. It really is so amazing to see that for the first time. I I don't think that we, we've not seen enough of that like kind of diplomatic courage and just sheer kind of talent. Yeah, that's a great way to put it because there is the risk of failing and that's the thing. Like things could fail, that that happens with any kind of diplomacy that you might not get the result. And it could be why a lot of people shy away from making the effort, from creating the meetings, whatever it is, making that effort, making going from place to place and making sure that they're doing all the right things behind the scenes. And it won't always work, but the fact that she's willing to try, I just think it's just such a relief and nice to see. So, yes, Yes. on to our next topic. Uh, So, I mean, sticking with a little bit in this theme, so to a former Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Julia Gillard, who has been moderating a panel this week, which has gotten a lot of people talking. Um, It got a lot of media reports, probably because it came just after, obviously, the new Anthony Albanese government was sworn in. And she shared comments around kind of a warning to the women of Australia, although she didn't put it that way, but saying that, you know, this continued push to work from home could put women's careers at risk in the long term. She made the point that women could become invisible from behind the screens and the problem is that uh, we could see and there's actually data showing that this is happening and really you only need to go to a CBD and take a look at who is sitting in the cafes, take a look at who is on the 6am flight from Sydney to Melbourne, take a look at who's in the airport lounges, who's on the public transport and you'll actually see there does seem to be a lot more men than women going to those kind of CBD knowledge office jobs. And I say that anecdotally from what I'm seeing, but we've also seen data backing this up and various reports and surveys backing this up as well, that men are more inclined to return to offices than women at this point. But she's saying that, you know, this could see us going backwards in terms of pay, leadership in the future, in terms of workplace gender equality, not because, you know, we're any less productive from home, but because we are less visible. We've put a story on this on our homepage at the moment. I was just having a quick look at some of the Facebook comments and you can see there are very, very mixed feelings to her making these comments, uh, Mm. which have come across in some ways as as quite controversial. I understand her point. I wish it didn't have to be like that, but I kind of see that how, you know, if you've got two people with the same talent and experience, experience and they both go for the same promotion one works from home, the other works in the office and is visible in front of that manager who might be making this decision about the promotion, you can kind of see that maybe some bias might come into that decision and that ultimately if that bias is coming to that decision and more men are in the office than women, then 
that could create uh, broader macro issues. And we can also say, and this was Julie Gillard's point as well, that women are already taking up a lot of the domestic unpaid work at home. And um, I know that I certainly do when I work from home, I do more stuff in the home as well. Isn't always a bad thing because frankly, we need something to be done in this home. So um, yeah, I think it's interesting. There's been a lot of other stuff around this. I mean, it comes just today. Elon Musk has told his staff that they are required back in the office for no less than 40 hours a week. That's the minimum and he capitalised minimum. So he is not a fan of work from home. He actually said that any company that doesn't require this hasn't actually shipped a great product recently because basically implying that people working from home are not actually working. He's obviously not reading women's agenda because I like to think that we ship a great product. And we mostly work from home. I only work from home. Yeah. from home. It's like you, you go from your bedroom, your kitchen, whatever you do that, and you go into your office and you seem to be there all day and doing stuff all day. You are super productive. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I love working from home. I do miss seeing people face to face. And I do think that the point that Julie Gillard was ultimately trying to raise even though it comes across as quite controversial, isn't necessarily controversial. I think what she's trying to point to is the fact that there are broader, more systemic issues at play that we need to unpack and address and fix that go beyond just flexibility at home. Because at the moment, being flexible, working remotely, isn't something that is readily taken up by men and women equally. And if it was, then we wouldn't you know, we wouldn't even have to think about something like women being invisible behind screens. Everyone would still be equal. But the issue is that that that's not what's happening. Women are the ones predominantly taking that time to work remotely, to be able to, you know, raise kids in between, to be able to do domestic labour. And that's a bigger conversation that we need to have and, and you know, more needs to be done there. To address that. I think employers play a big part in that, in normalising flexible work, which we know is still not being done enough. There are big conversations around it, but at the end of the day, it just needs to be ubiquitous for everyone. Mm. And that's not where we're at. So I get where she's coming from. And I think it is a potential issue. If we carry on the same way that we are, then there is that that risk that women will be left behind again at this kind of critical juncture as well, where I feel like, you know, we are kind of starting to see real progress in, in some of the policies that are, are coming to the forefront, obviously with labor being elected and the focus on, on universal childcare, ultimately, you know, all these shifts are happening, but we do need to, to make sure that we're always being comprehensive. We're always being holistic in how we address it. Mm. Final story for today. Sorry, two more stories. So first of all, Cheryl Sandberg is leaning out. She is stepping down from her role as Chief Operating Officer at Facebook and the number two really to Mark Zuckerberg. She has played an instrumental role in the growth of Facebook and she's possibly one of the most powerful and visible women in tech in the world. And obviously she cemented a lot of that power and that visibility when she penned Lean In in I want to say 2014. I remember reading it. 
And it sparked a whole movement about leaning in, about this whole kind of call to action for women in the workplace to just lean into these positions of leadership and promotions and pay and all these other wonderful things. It was a little individualistic. It was a very white kind of corporate feminism kind of sense. And it really, uh, it, it got a lot of pickup in those years before it really hit a lot of backlash for really kind of failing to look at the system and failing to look at women who maybe didn't have the same uh, levels of privilege as she did. <laughs> so maybe, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of, I, I can't believe she's stayed with Facebook all this time. I think Facebook has got a lot of issues, many of which that we've talked about previously on this po- podcast and many of which I feel that Sandberg being the second person in charge and the most powerful woman there possibly could have done a little more on like, for instance, maybe making publicly available the research they did on teen girls and depression and the link to Instagram, which didn't become available till it was leaked to uh, the Washington Post. So, you know, there's just there's just a little bit of stuff that I would have liked to hear more from her over the past five or six years with everything going on at Facebook. But she is stepping down and she's going to focus on her philanthropic work. Mm. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's something. There you go. Okay, so the final story we also wanted to touch on is the defamation trial between Amber Heard and her ex-husband, Johnny Depp, which has reached a verdict today. So basically this is seen that Johnny Depp has successfully won the defamation case and the jury has awarded him US $10 million in damages, but Amber Heard has won a counter-defamation part there and been awarded around $2 million, but largely this has been seen as a win for, for Johnny Depp and it's such a complicated case and I was talking to our journalist Madeline Hislop about this and we we're saying how we, aside from the stories that were published on Women's Agenda, for whatever reason, we both feel like we've been tuning out of it. But obviously it has huge consequences. I think that Amber Heard's statement uh, was really sad. Um, afterwards, the statement that she shared to Twitter, she spoke about the fact that she's heartbroken that there wasn't enough evidence to stand up to the disproportionate power, influence and sway of her ex-husband and she feels that this case has set the clock back to a time when women who spoke up and spoke out could be publicly shamed and humiliated. The thing with Amber Heard is, and, you know, this is a thing I've possibly tuned up because I haven't seen as much of the backlash against Amber Heard as other people would have, maybe because I'm not in those social media circles or whatever it is, but she has been mocked relentlessly online. TikTok has mocked, like there's been numerous TikTok videos created around the evidence that she shared just the vitriol and misogyny that has come out against her has been horrible. There's also those who argue that these are two big celebrity things. It's become this kind of celebrity show trial thing. It raises questions as to why this was ever televised in the first place when it's, you know, involving domestic violence or alleged domestic violence. And ultimately, when you think about what Amber Heard was sued for, it comes down to an opinion piece published in the Washington Post in which she never named Johnny Depp and basically where she said that two years ago I became a public figure representing domestic violence and that's kind of what the case came down to as to whether or not that was defamatory and whether or not um, it was said with malice. I mean, I am not a legal expert. I'm very far from a legal expert and I understand the complexity of this case and I can't get into the weeds of that. But what I can say is that I have seen a lot of the commentary and vitriol surrounding Amber Heard across social media, which has really just like sickened me to my core over the last few weeks. I think ultimately 
she is a victim as a result of that. And there were also certain things and elements of this trial that came out, evidence that was very clearly explicitly shown. The text messages messages that Johnny Depp had sent calling her a whore, wanting to kill her, wanting to drown her, wanting to burn her. You know, I don't know how we can leave this saga feeling like the right call has ultimately been made when those actions are very violent in nature. You know, clearly there was a lot going on there. So I think that her statement today was really sad and I kind of can't help but feel like it is a bit of a step back. I don't know the ins and outs of their relationship and potentially there was toxicity on both parts. I mean, that's certainly what it seems like. But to look at this and and not think of her as a victim of abuse seems very off to me. And, you know, any commentator, any media outlet that's been following this case will tell you that, you know, the like 95% of the people that have been milling around the courthouse Mm. waiting for decisions to be reached, waiting for Johnny Depp to drive past and like, you know, wave to them all as like in true kind of Jack Sparrow fashion is just really weird and like just makes me feel so uneasy. It's 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 like it has become this kind of big celebrity show. Mm. Yeah, and the imbalance is huge. His celebrity status is a lot higher than than hers and he has a lot bigger fan base. And if anything, I feel like also people who are looking for a way to to say that, see, we don't have to believe all women, they've sort of been playing on this case in a way, like just waiting for it to to, to fall in the way that it, that it has. And it wasn't so much about believing her, it was about the fact that it was a defamation trial. It, it wasn't, he wasn't on, on trial, she wasn't on, it was, it was a defamation trial. And I just think that the verdict has, I've just found it quite sad seeing uh, that and also kind of seeing some of the commentary around what this might uh, mean for victims of violence who may feel like they can't speak out and may kind of have been watching this and seeing where it's all gone and seeing the vitriol that's been shared against her and how she's been made fun of. So on that note. Sombre way to end our episode. On that sombre note, uh, we will close up. So uh, thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can access all the uh, topics and stories that we've discussed on our website. We can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. And also a reminder about the Cardia Women's Initiative, that global entrepreneurship program, championing women founders whose business have a social or environmental impact and the awards that might be relevant to you and your business. Go and check it out. CartierWomensInitiative.com. We'll put the URL in the show notes. Thank you for listening.